of the Word, the Word of God. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 19 today, verses 28 to 44. But before we do, let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do come and worship you because you did not leave us in our sin. You did not leave us to perish, which is what we deserved. But instead, you sent your Son, Jesus, into this world to redeem us, to adopt us, to call us your own, and to use us for your kingdom. And I pray, Father, that that your Holy Spirit would inhabit us right now, Lord, in the speaking of your word and in the hearing of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been doing a series on uh, the subject of a portrait of a Savior as we go through this period of Lent to Easter next Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are really looking forward to worshiping Jesus together as a congregation next weekend. But today is Palm Sunday, as you've gleaned from the worship, um, as you've had your palms to wave. Um, And Palm Sunday commemorates the events that happened exactly one week before the resurrection of Jesus, and just days before Jesus was um, betrayed, arrested, tried, uh, whipped unmercifully, and ultimately crucified uh, and died. It's interesting that this is the fourth year in a row I've been speaking on Palm Sunday, not at this church, but in other churches. I I, uh, was wondering why I always get asked to speak on Palm Sunday. I think lead pastors, Larry, you can comment, but lead pastors... Um, you know, they're, they're getting ready for the Super Bowl, which is Easter, right? You know, and, and you kind of come to Palm Sunday, you say, you know, what's Palm Sunday? You know, Easter is the, the big event, and, uh, you know, we don't always know what to do with Palm Sunday. It's like the last uh, preseason game before the, the, the real season starts, maybe, or something like that. Um, but, uh, I mean, does anyone have any great family traditions for Palm Sunday? No? Yeah. I mean, we, we, anyone, you know... Um, Decorate your houses for Palm Sunday? Not really. Yeah, yeah. But we have our palms, so that's a great tradition. So what is Palm Sunday? Palm Sunday, for the few months before this, Jesus had been teaching and he had been um, a healing in the area around Jerusalem. And large crowds had been following him. Uh, and during this time, uh, he told his disciples repeatedly, he said, I will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging me, they will kill me, and on the third day, I will rise. He was telling his disciples over and over again that this would happen. And as time went past, the leaders of Israel were more and more looking for reasons to arrest Jesus and to kill him. Um, But on Palm Sunday, the final confrontation begins. Jesus rides a colt down the Mount of Olives, which was just across a valley from the temple. So if you looked in the temple, you could look across and see the Mount of Olives. And he rode this this donkey down the mountain with people cheering through the Kidron Valley and up into the city. And um, it was a time of great uh, hope for Jesus' disciples. And the crowds were so right in many ways because he was the king that had been prophesied for a thousand years since the kingdom of David. Uh, He would sit on David's throne forever. But at the same time, the crowds were so, so wrong, because Jesus would not be the kind of king that they had imagined. So if you would stand up, we're going to read through this passage of Scripture. We're going to do it a little bit different, because it's a a bigger passage um, than sometimes we read. 
So we're going to read it kind of uh, responsibly. I'm going to read a paragraph, and then you can read a paragraph, and then I'll read a paragraph, and you can read a paragraph. We can all do it together. So let me start. I'll start reading in verse uh, 28, and the words are up on the screen. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. Okay, ready? So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it so Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Okay, ready? And saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Thank you. You may be seated. So the key word to think about on Palm Sunday is king. Oops. Sorry. King. Um, So I spent a week just really meditating on this word king. What is a king? How do I feel about having a king? Why do I so naturally rebel uh, against authority? Um, What should a right relationship with King Jesus be? And in the process, as I was meditating on the word king, another character in the story really stuck out to me, and that was the donkey. Interesting. So I'm going to show you the outline we're going to follow today. Point number one, I am a donkey. Point number two, he is the king. And point number three, is he your king? So point number one, I am a donkey. Can you all say amen? Now, don't laugh because I'm calling myself a donkey. I'm going to be calling you all a donkey, too. Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, let's take a look at that. Uh, Luke Colt calls him a colt, but uh, the Gospels make it clear that this is not a horse, but it's a a young donkey, a colt of a donkey. He wasn't full-grown. And when I read this passage, I wondered why Luke spent so much time, uh, verses 29 to 34, telling us about how Jesus got the colt to ride on. My first reaction is, who cares? You know, the, 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 how, why does it matter how Jesus got 
a donkey to ride down the Mount of Olives. Uh, but it was clearly important because Luke includes it in his gospel, and so does Mark, and so does Matthew. Um, and the point is simple. Jesus, being God, knew all things, present and future, um, and he knew that in the village ahead of him that he hadn't gotten to yet, there would be a cult that would be tied up that no one had ever ridden on. And he was able to tell his disciples, this is what's going to happen further ahead, and you're going to untie the colt. Um, and the owner would gladly give the colt over to the disciples. Now remember, taking a colt, it'd be like the car theft in our days, right? You, you just don't, you don't do that. Uh, but Jesus knew that all the disciples had to say was, the Lord has need of it, and the owner would gladly give it over. In the same way as that donkey, hang with me for a second, Jesus looked forward throughout all eternity, from the beginning of the foundation of the world, and saw you and chose you. Ephesians 1 says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So we're like, kind of like the donkey in that way. The second one, Jesus chose the donkey, didn't he? The donkey didn't choose Jesus. He didn't run up to him and say, choose me, choose me. Um, Jesus chose the donkey. He could have chosen a lot finer animals in all of Palestine. There could have, there's probably some really nice horses, white horses, to ride into town. But Jesus didn't choose the donkey because he was the finest animal. Jesus, Jesus chose the donkey because he chose him. And you know what? That's true of us, is what the Bible says. Jesus told his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So just like that donkey, you were chosen. You didn't choose Jesus. Well, here's another thing. The central focus of the story is not the donkey, right? Um, The central focus is Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I kind of like to be the center of attention. It feels good to me. Uh, I like people to notice me. Um, In this passage, you know, the the crowds are waving their palm fronds and and they're putting their cloaks on the the ground. But it wasn't for the donkey, right? It was for Jesus. Uh, They're praising Jesus, the rider of the donkey. And your life and my life, if lived the right way, will lift Jesus up. And no one will notice you. They'll notice Jesus. And the question is, are you okay with that? A lot of times, I'm not okay with that. I want, hey, look at me, look at me. You know, can you imagine the donkey saying that? But the, but the donkey did the right thing. The people praised Jesus. And that's how our lives should be as well. Next, it says that Jesus was riding a colt that no one had ever ridden before. Is that significant? Apparently it is. Not from an agricultural society, we say, so what? But most animals do not willingly accept riders for the first time. You've probably seen cowboys in in movies, and they get on a bucket bronco, and the the horse is trying to throw them off, right? Or in rodeos, you know, what are those horses that that are jumping up and down? They're horses that have not been broken yet. They don't want a rider. And apparently it's no different from donkeys. A small donkey in the midst of a a chaotic crowd is apparently patiently walking Jesus down the mountain and up to Jerusalem. It's kind of an amazing thing, but it shows Jesus' power over his creation, that he had to break that donkey just by his his actions. Um, And it just shows us what great power Jesus has. 
But in the same way, you and I need to be broken of our will, right? If if we continue to just press forward and say, I'm going to do things my way, Jesus can't use us. But once he breaks us, he can use us. He can ride us. And he puts us to work. And the final thing I want to say about the donkey, donkeys are known to be stubborn creatures. You've heard the expression stubborn as a mule or stubborn as a donkey. Um, Donkeys want to do what they want to do, as I understand it. Um, And don't discount this idea of stubbornness. Because stubbornness, when it comes right down to it, is just sin. It's an unwillingness to follow directions of the master. Um, If you look at this picture that Palm Sunday presents, it's actually kind of an interesting study. Jesus, the creator of all things, all powerful and all good, is sitting on a stubborn donkey that is willingly obeying him, and he's riding into the city of Jerusalem, the stubborn city of Jerusalem, that would not receive him and that would kill him instead. So the donkey is doing exactly what the creator created him for, but the people of God were rejecting their savior. It's a picture. So a key point, as rebellious sinners, we naturally buck against a king who is over us, who will exercise authority over us. And the amazing thing as we celebrate Good Friday is that this king that we naturally rebel against went to a cross and died for us that we might have life. Praise God for that. So we've talked about the donkey. Let's talk about Jesus. Jesus is the king. The the crowds on Palm Sunday were welcoming Jesus um, the way they always pictured that they would welcome the Messiah to the Jewish people. It doesn't say it in Luke's account, but on the other gospel accounts, it says that they're waving palm branches, which symbolize their joy and the peace that the Messiah would bring. The crowds were chanting Psalm 118, which is what the Old Testament prophesied is what you would say when the Messiah comes to Israel. They would say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're laying their their clothes, their cloaks on the ground. They're shouting Hosanna. It's what you did when you welcomed a conquering king into your city. So they were just reenacting everything they had heard about growing up, going through Hebrew school. Um, I think uh, Margaret read the words of Zechariah chapter 9 before. This is what the people of Israel would say and do when the Messiah came. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. So, that, so they're reenacting what they believe. This is, this is what they've been taught. This is what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. And they were, they, were, uh, they were doing exactly what they had learned about. And up to this point in Jesus' ministry... Remember, he has resisted every, uh, every time that the people tried to make him king, he, he, he kind of backed away and went away into the wilderness. You know, he, he resisted this idea of being king because he kept saying, it is not my time yet, it's not my time. But here, um, Jesus is going along with the crowd for the first time, accepting their praise, forcing the issue with the Jewish leaders. He was, in a sense, saying... The time has come, either crown me or kill me. He was forcing the issue. And of course, he knew how this was going to come out, that he would be arrested, that he would be crucified. 
So the crowds believed that they would that he would save the, the Jewish people uh, from the Roman Empire and give them a new time of peace and prosperity. But Jesus was a different kind of a king. Let me show you how Jesus was a different kind of a king. First of all, Jesus is alive forevermore. Now, if you think about um, a lot of uh, rulers, uh, you know, uh, think about a U.S. president. Now, you may like a president, may not like a president, but you know what? One thing's for sure. There's going to be another election in four years, right? So even if you don't like a president, you can say, well, we can wait another four years and hopefully get a better one next time. But Jesus, you know, when he died and rose again and ascended into heaven, he didn't vanish. He's alive today. I mean, just think about that. He is the king today, right? And so he, he doesn't, he's not a king that just comes and has his term in office and leaves. He is king forevermore. Second, Jesus is all-powerful. There's a lot of leaders who, you know, they might really want to help their people. They might really... Uh, desire to do good things for their people, but they don't really have the power to make it happen. The Pharisees tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples uh, because they're acting like he's the Messiah, which he is, and quoting Old Testament passages. And, you know, and Jesus is all-powerful. He could have just struck them down with lightning at any time. We know of his great power. But he restrains that power and simply says that if the crowds kept quiet, even the rocks would cry out. So this all-powerful Jesus, able to control all of nature, the, the rocks and the trees and the mountains would cry out at his command. So Jesus is this all-powerful king, able to do whatever is necessary to bring about his purpose in your life. Jesus is not weak to do what he wants to do in your life. The third thing Jesus is a king who cares about his people. Jesus is a king who cares so much about his people that he weeps over them. One of the uh, criticisms we have about human rulers is, you know, they, they're kind of into themselves. They can be egotistical. You know, they care about themselves, you know, and, and uh, getting money or getting reelected or something like that. But Jesus is different. You know, what a strange picture we see in the Palm Sunday passages. We see the crowds cheering for Jesus, waving their palm branches. And at one point, Jesus breaks down and weeps for his people. In the midst of this grand parade, it's a strange contradiction of emotions. And the reason for this contradiction is Jesus knows the future. He knows what is going to happen to the city of Jerusalem. He's been saying it over and over again. He, you know, at one point, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets, you know, and then... It, uh, the Olivet Discourse, he tells his disciples there's that, that, you know, don't praise the temple. It, all, every stone is going to be turned over. And Jesus looks into the future just 40 short years later and knows what's going to happen. Jesus said in this passage, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a, a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and, um, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And that's exactly what happened historically 40 years later. The Roman general, Titus, came into Jerusalem and committed, had a siege against the city, a four-year siege uh, where he surrounded the city. And finally, in 70 AD, the siege was lifted and they destroyed the city and tore it down completely. 
um, hundreds of thousands of people were killed. And it was especially bad because the city was swelled with uh, celebrators of the Passover. And those, so they killed the armed rebels, they killed the elderly people, they took 97,000 Jews captive and brought them back to Rome. And many of them became gladiators in the Colosseum. So Jesus is looking to the future and he's weeping because he knows what's going to happen to the Jewish people. And it's primarily because they rejected him. They did not know the time of their visitation. He's not weeping because he can't stop it. He, he could, he's all-powerful. He can do anything. Yet he is the king who cares about his people. He cares about you. And I hope that you know that deeply today. Well, fourth, Jesus is a king who is approachable. He rides into town on this little donkey, not even a full-grown donkey. I picture Jesus' feet almost dragging on the ground. I don't know how big the donkey was. Um, And I'm sure Jesus' disciples would prefer that he came to town on a a grand steed, a a great big horse, um, to slay his enemies. But Jesus, one of the things he's showing with a donkey is that he is humble. He's approachable. Um, It also shows that Jesus is not the kind of ruler you hear about in the news. You know, I mean, I've never met most of the senators or certainly not the president of the United States. You know, I mean, you can hear about them, but, you know, you can't approach them. But Jesus is different. He is approachable to every one of us, to the, from the greatest to the least. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. That's in John chapter 15. And that word friend, it's, it's the word that's sometimes used to talk about the best man in the wedding. The bridegroom has his best friend, the best man. And that's, that's the word that Jesus says. And if you're his child, he regards you as his best man, his best woman. And that's a beautiful thought. So Jesus is an approachable king. And the final thing that Jesus, um, the reason Jesus is a different kind of a ruler, is see, the people wanted Jesus to come into town and slay their earthly enemies. But Jesus had a different plan. He came to town, but he did not slay their earthly enemies, but he slew the bigger enemies, that of sin and death, the world and the devil. That's the one that he came, those are the ones that he came to slay. And that's why Jesus is a different kind of a king than the kind of kings we're used to. Well, finally, my last question is, is Jesus your king? Now, when I ask that question, if you're a longtime churchgoer uh, or a, a Christian, you probably say in your head, of, of course, Jesus is my king. Of course, we've been singing about it all morning. Um, but if you came into church today and you were totally unchurched and someone said, Jesus is the king, what would your reaction be? It might be, well, that's kind of old-fashioned. I mean, how ancient, right? I mean, we don't really have kings around these days. We don't even like the concept of king when you think about it. Let's remind ourselves about a couple of things. What is a king? Um, and how do kings get power? A king is someone who rules as an absolute ruler, a dictator, if you will. Um, I see you, something on the screen. Yeah. Uh, what the king said was law. So in the Bud Light commercials, of course, um, everyone's bringing their gifts of Bud Light to the king, and he's very happy. And then someone brings a, a spiced wine that he's really into. 
And, uh, and, and the king says, please show him to the pit of misery. Dilly dilly, right? Um, but that's what you could do if you were king. If you don't like an offering from someone, you can just say off with his head. That's what kings did. And the, the honest truth is we don't really like that kind of power in one man, an absolute monarch. We like checks and balances, for those of you who are into constitutional law, right? So that one person doesn't get to be too powerful. And how did kings get their power? You either became king because you were the son of the present king, or because you uh, became king by a violent overthrow of the present kingdom. And what's the human history of kings? I mean, it's kind of rotten, honestly. I mean, kings were known to uh, live in luxury, tax their people, and let the people live in poverty, you know? So um, let me bring it back. Palm Sunday is about recognizing Jesus as our king, but you might be scratching your head and saying, is that, is that a good thing? I mean, do we really want a king? Um, so the question is, on the slide, is why is Jesus, as our king, something to celebrate? And the answer is because he's the king we need. See, all of us need a ruler, whether we realize it or not. If we don't have Jesus as our king... We will give our lives to something else. That's just how it is. That's how we were created. We were created to live in this loving relationship with God where God provides for us and and we willingly submitted to God as our king. And therefore, part of our DNA is that if we're not submitting to Jesus as king, we will submit ourselves to something else that will ultimately enslave us. Some of us are ruled by uh, trying to meet the expectations of other people. And we find that it's a never-ending task to try to please other people. It becomes a slavery to us. Some of us are ruled by our careers. And we give ourselves to our careers 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And yet we never seem to get where we're trying to get to. We're never satisfied. It's never enough. Uh, Some of us are ruled by the, the need to look good in the eyes of people. Um, we want recognition, we want praise, and that becomes a treadmill that we get on, right? Uh, some of us are ruled by our political causes. Uh, we have this belief that if only we get the right guy or the right woman into power the next election, then we will create a society that we've been longing for, right? And we keep hoping for that next election, things are going to change. And yet, every time... The next election happens, and we might be happy about the result. We might be unhappy about the result. But you know what? Things don't really change. That's just kind of how it is with political causes. And yet, we keep thinking, next time, next time, next time, we're going to get it right. And it's just its a never-ending process, a never-satisfying process. Rick Warren uh, wrote this. He said, everybody eventually surrenders to something or someone, if not to God. You will surrender to the opinions or expectations of others, to money, to resentment, to fear, or to your own pride, lusts, or ego. You were designed to worship God, and if you fail to worship him, you will create other things, idols, to give your life to. So that's what we have to think about when we say king. Why is it good that Jesus is our king? Because if not him, we will allow ourselves to be enslaved by something else. See, deep down, we are looking for that good master. 
that we lost in the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, Adam and Eve had the perfect relationship, submissive to a God who loved them and provided for them. And ever since the Garden of Eden, we've been seeking to get back to that situation where we have that good uh, and powerful king. And that's why we continually give ourselves to something, hoping that, that they will satisfy. And yet only Jesus, as our king, will satisfy. Because only Jesus is the one who's actually dealt with the things that we need dealt with in our lives. The only one who died for our sin. The only one who has conquered our sinful human nature and made a way for us to be forever back with God, as it was in the Garden of Eden. So we're thankful for that. So when it comes to Jesus as our king, I would say people fall into one of three camps. Um, And as I do this, I I have some questions in red that you'll be seeing that you can ask, uh, you can talk about in your home groups. Well, camp number one is people who say, not my king, right? Uh, We see people running around these days a lot who say, not my president. They're they're wearing t-shirts, they're holding signs, writing on their foreheads, not my president, not my president, right? And... um, Of course, the current president is the president, whether you admit it or not. But what people are saying is his policies uh, do not represent my desires, right? And I think many people in our society feel the same way about Jesus. You know, they say, um, sure, Jesus must have been a great guy 2,000 years ago, but I'm not going to make him my king. You know, I'm my own king. I'm not going to submit myself to someone else. Why? Why would I do that? Um, so many of us, many people in our society, in our heart of hearts, have no intention of worshiping Jesus. They basically say, not my king, right? So there's a lot of people, I'm sure there's no one here in this room like that, but the question to ask yourself is, how might you be resisting the work that Jesus is doing in your life? Something to ponder. Well, the second camp um, will call Jesus king, but only in a ceremonial sense. Um, Last May 19th, big world event. I'm kind of doing this in quotes, right? Um, The royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. I mean, that was a huge event. It happened in England. You guys can admit it. Some of you woke up at 6 a.m. because you wanted to see the royal wedding, right? Uh, A big event. Um, But here's the fact. Prince Harry will never be king, right? Um, Even his father is not yet king. And even after Prince Charles' father passes away, his brother William will be king. And yet, we love a royal procession, right? We love the ceremony of a king and a kingdom and a queen and things like that. And somehow, it's possible to to kind of think of Jesus in that way, if we're honest. Uh, We like the pomp and circumstance of of church and, and the celebration of holidays and things like that. But in our heart of hearts, we really have no intention of actually submitting ourselves to him. It's kind of like the people of England. I mean, to be honest, the king or queen of England, they don't have much power, right? It's the, it's the prime minister and the parliament, but they love their queen, right? And in some ways, it's possible to do that with Jesus. We kind of love church and all the religious trappings, but we have no intention of actually obeying Jesus in places that it really counts. So here's a question to think about. Are the ways in which you are treating Jesus more as a ceremonial king than a true king? And it's to this camp of people, Jesus said, 
why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I tell you to do? Jesus is not interested in being a figurehead king in your life. He wants to be your true king. Well, the third camp is those who honestly, in their heart of hearts, want Jesus as a true king. Um, They want him to be the absolute ruler. But if it's like me, we struggle to really um, follow Jesus as our true king. And the question is, how can I really tell? I mean, that if, if I'm just fooling myself and say, oh yeah, Jesus is my true king, well, is he really? I think there's a couple of tests. Um, the first test is, if Jesus is your true king, then you worship him. It's how you worship him. And don't think of worship simply as what we did during the first 30 minutes of this service. Worship is so much bigger than just singing. It's your whole life. Worship is what you do with someone who has captured your imagination. Someone you daydream about is who you worship. William Temple was the Archbishop of Canterbury in England, and he had a a wonderful quote about worship. He said, Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of the will to his purpose, all gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. I mean, that's, that's, that's a rich statement of what worship's all about. It's, it's the entire body and soul given over to God in adoration. So if Jesus is truly your king, you worship him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. You, you daydream about Jesus? I have to admit I don't. Uh, I, I get busy and I don't even think about Jesus sometimes. And um, I know I need to grow in my worship. Again, not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the week where I give myself over to him over and over again. And the second way that you and I can tell if, if Jesus is truly our king is by our obedience. True obedience is an attitude of joyful surrender. Kind of like that donkey, right? Surrendering ourselves completely to Jesus' purpose in our lives. And the question is, how are you doing with obedience to God? As I look at my own life, I I, I realize I have a long way to go. I mean, I I like people to look at me and say, wow, that's Scott. He's he's an obedient kind of guy, you know? I, I like people to look at me and that way, but the real test of obedience is, what do you do when you're alone? Or maybe when you're tired? What do you run to? Do you run to Jesus? Or do you run to something else? Another idol that you have on the side. You know, when you're being obedient to Jesus, you ask many times a day, Jesus, what do you want me to be doing right now? And I've noticed Jesus will answer that question. When you ask Jesus, what do you you want me to be doing right now? It comes like that. Um, the question is, am I willing to do it when he tells me what to do? So the final question to consider as we uh, start to close today, is there anything keeping you from joyfully yielding your whole life to him? So this Palm Sunday at the beginning of Holy Week, we're reminded that Jesus is the true king. He's the king who sacrificed himself so that you may have eternal life. And he's looking for a few good donkeys. 
who will lift him up and submit to his loving instructions for them. Would you do that? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you loved us so much to send your own Son, Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you are all-powerful. You are the sovereign over all things. You are good and merciful and full of grace, and that's what we need, Lord. And we find that in Jesus. We pray you send your Spirit upon us today. Bring faith where there is unbelief. Bring strength where there is weariness. Bring hope where there is despair. Fill us with the wonder of Jesus Christ, who lived a perfectly righteous life and died so that we may live. And he rose again and said that in my Father's house there are many rooms. We're thankful, Father, for the joy that you have set before us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to crown Jesus as our King this day and in the days to come. Amen. I'll ask the prayer team to come forward. Um, if there's